This is a Diet of Brussels. What is relative sovereignty and how can it help us with the uh, debate around the referendum? This is another question that's come through the internet from UK to stay in the EU and I leave it to you to decide what their particular views might be. Um, to be honest, this actually sent me back uh, down memory lane uh, when I was doing my master's thesis some time ago. It was about uh, Britain's debate about the uh, membership of the single currency and uh, at the time I felt uh, clearly very exercised about the uh, use of the phrase or the word sovereignty and so half my master's thesis is trying to explore and uh, deconstruct uh, what that word meant. And I think I came to the conclusion that uh, we should try not to use it because it wasn't very helpful. But I'm always one to accept a challenge and uh, UK to stay in the EU has uh, thrown that one down. Sovereignty is uh, a really tricky subject uh, to deal with politically and legally. Um, we talk about it a lot, we say it's important and yet when we actually try to pin down what it means uh, it becomes a bit more elusive. To take an obvious example, there's a difference between uh, de facto sovereignty and de jure uh, sovereignty. Uh, anyone can claim that they are sovereign, that they have the ultimate power to make decisions for themselves. Um, but in practice, uh, is that actually the case? Uh, similarly, uh, the tension between the internal view of sovereignty uh, and the external view is one which is uh, all too apparent that, you know, if you think about uh, domestic politics, then we tend to think about a sovereign uh, location that uh, is the ultimate decision-making uh, power. And yet, uh, in the international system, clearly there is also then uh, some scope for thinking about, well, this is uh, relational, that uh, you are sovereign because you treat others as sovereign and that that uh, constructs this notion of uh, what is uh, yours and what is other people's. Um, all of this really is a, is a prelude really to saying that I find it a, a problematic concept. I, I think that where I, I, I came up to was that uh, it's probably most useful to think of it as a, a ticket to the ball, to use uh, one author's uh, evocative phrase. Um, as, Simon, as Michael Heseltine uh, said back in the 1990s, uh, it's a bit like a man in the desert, you know, he's free and he's sovereign, but he's also powerless. Uh, that sovereignty is something which is uh, giving you access to a system where you can use your power in relation to others. Now, uh, our, our questioner has uh, offered um, this particular phrase of relative uh sovereignty and this is something which goes back to uh, Leibniz who was writing in the wake of the uh, Thirty Years War and the Westphalian uh, settlement. In essence he's trying to, to balance the, uh, the tensions between local situations and broader situations. So he's saying that for um, uh, internal power structures you need some kind of supreme power, some kind of place where the buck stops and says this is where decisions are made but you also need to have uh, some uh, obligations to higher levels of authority and in the context of uh, 
17th century uh, Germany, as I'm sure you're all familiar with, uh, where you have the Holy Roman Empire, that you have these different levels uh, of obligation. So you're able to do things within your sphere, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your sphere is exhaustive. Now, to give you an idea about this, uh, if we think about the British system, you know, we think of the British system as nice and clear, that we've got parliamentary sovereignty. But parliamentary sovereignty here is... Uh, Still not clear, because uh, as much as we say that Parliament can't be bound by anyone, and you know, this is something we've talked about uh, in other episodes, at the same time, uh, clearly Parliament reflects the will of the people. Now, how do the people make an ultimate decision? Well, that's hard to say, because at some point they have to organise themselves, uh, produce people who will articulate their views. So actually, in an era of uh, popular democracy, uh, of constitutional documents, the point of sovereignty, the locus of sovereignty, is often uh, confused. What all of this, I think, uh, leads us towards, and I th- assume this is what uh, the the question was uh, trying to suggest, is that we shouldn't think about sovereignty simply as uh, a billiard ball, a hard thing. Either you have it or you don't. You know, it's not uh, it's not like pregnancy that uh, you're either sovereign or you're not. Rather, it's uh, about having power so that you can use power. Now, uh, in practical terms, we can see that kind of argument that even if we didn't have the EU, we would have extensive uh, international obligations. Uh, There's a piece in The Economist this week suggesting or noting that the UK has uh, somewhere in the region of 700 international treaties uh, to which it's a signatory, and uh, they cover everything from defence through to standards on uh, emissions through to, uh, well, pretty much any aspect of life that you might think about. Now, uh, we accept those in different ways. We don't have those kind of debates about the the importance or the necessity of uh, accepting other people being able to tell us what to do. And I think there's a, maybe a useful final point here is that the flip side of giving up some of your power to enter into a collective arrangement is that typically you also gain some power to make some influence of other people's arrangements too. So there is a quid pro quo in entering into uh, supranational arrangements. However, at the same time, that can be very difficult to articulate, as I think I've just demonstrated over the past six and a half minutes. So something to think about, and I think it's something we'll have to come back to again and think if we can talk about it in more concrete terms.